I need to, I need to uh, kind of just, I was going to, I bring this up later in my notes, but I realize how prevalent this thinking is, and I think it's going to be helpful to frame the words we have today. I was listening to uh, someone just every Thursday night, they take questions and answer them, and they really mentioned uh, a posture in the, in I think every generation in the church, but I think particularly the younger generation in the church, I think feels real pressed and feels something, but maybe all of us identify with it. At least I did. It's this idea that even in the church and even in Christianity, we, we, we kind of have this idea or this feeling that when we're doing good things, God is pleased with us. And so we come in the space, man, we feel good. God, you see me worship and I'm doing it in spirit and truth. And But like the rest of our life, we kind of feel like God's mad at us or disappointed in us. And so we live in this world where like we we get this spiritual satisfaction and rightly so from like doing good stuff. But the minute we're not focused entirely, we just feel like kind of God, the father is looking down at us and rolling his eyes all the time. Like, man, why did you do that? Why did you say that? Why did you think that again and again and again? And, and I think this thinking is really, really pervasive um, in a merit-based culture, in many of us raised in religious traditions, like that's the way I know I spend a lot of my life. Just to be honest with you, I, I feel like there are moments when God is saying, man, that's why I saved that Seth. You know, he just, he's really pleasing me right now. But the rest of the time he's like, come on. And so I don't know if that feeling resonates with you, but we're going to unpack every text I preach is like my favorite text in the Bible. But like, I think this may outlast a week or two. We're going to read in Luke 18. um, Jesus is confronting some folks who have a problem and their problem is that they trust in themselves. And by trusting in themselves, they hold contempt for other people. And so this is, this is a real problem. And he tells this story. I hope you have your Bible with you because there's a whole lot of just gold to circle, note, mention. But man, this is heavy. So Jesus, uh, chapter 18, verse 9, says these words. He, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt because of it. If you don't know what that means, it means that they believe they are all right and to make themselves feel better, they avoided other people and dismissed them. So like, man, you may have a brother or sister, a mother, father, son or daughter who just continually is like, you would consider them as life's biggest screw up, Right. They just always make dumb decisions and you always kind of sit around with the rest of their family. Can you believe what they did again? Like that's the heart where he's going with this. And and what he's saying is there were people who evaluated their good relative to other people's bad. And I think every one of us need to pause in this moment and realize that we do this, that we do this. It's not just a Baptist thing, although it's really pervasive. It's a human thing. And even those in Christ, it's our thing. We kind of hint at this when we say, I'm sick, I'm bad, but I don't have it near as bad as that other person. We're always comparing ourselves rather than just dealing with what is before the Lord, our suffering, our pain. And so he's dealing with people like us, maybe sometimes. And so he tells us a story. 
two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the economy of the kingdom of God. So let us pray that in. Father, teach us. Teach us the posture of beating our own chests to recognize our state, but not living there to live out and look up and reach out to a Savior, a great high priest, whose righteousness is our righteousness through Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I I, want to do a few things with with the text. Uh, First of all, I I just kind of want to say what's right in front of us. I think that, that both the... Uh, Pharisee and the tax collector. Obviously, they're intentional. Uh, Jesus understood everything at all times, and so he chose them um, very intentionally, and I think so that we might learn from both of these profiles what they both teach us, the kind of the poignant lesson that we receive. But I also think there is a uh, deeper lesson that you could pull out the Pharisee and put in anyone who kind of shares in this self-made righteousness, and you could pull out the tax collector and put in anyone who has reached kind of a place in life where they recognize there is but one thing to do, and it is to ask just to ask, right? And so, but I want to honor that and say, what's happening here? Like, what is the danger that we also run that Jesus is getting at by talking about one or the other? And so maybe just, let's just do that and then, and then draw this thing and make it a little more personal. We're going to get real personal today. You know, we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to go there. And so you need to just be aware that this is not just a distant academic study into 2000 years ago, ancient Jewish culture, but we're going to go there. So, so really what's happening with the Pharisees? First of all, I think we should probably ask that question and recognize the original audience isn't the Pharisee. The audience is any old uh, John Doe uh, who, who might trust in themselves. And because they trust in themselves, they kind of view others as lesser than or not as accomplished or spiritually mature, whatever it may be. And Jesus shows us this Pharisee, not just so that we may get mad at the Pharisee, right? But, but quite cron- contrary to that, you know, here's, here's what we can't do. We can't say, oh, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee. That, that, that violates the purpose and the teaching of the text. So the purpose is not for it to say, boy, I'm glad I'm not a Pharisee, right? You missed it. You actually are in that moment. Um, so what, what's, he, what's he doing, though? What's he teaching at a deeper level? I think there is a real, real powerful lesson that we've got to draw from this. It's the appeal and the temptation of comparing ourselves to others, right? Like we often do that. And the Pharisee's fault is he's doing that. There's danger in comparing yourself to others, actually. 
And, and that's the whole point. Like that's, that's damnable. This guy, this guy, this Pharisee will, this unnamed Pharisee will end up in an eternal hell unless he repents and calls out the name of Jesus and compares himself solely to the perfection of Jesus. So he's going to spend his whole life thinking he's made it, thinking he's awesome, thinking he's, 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 he's a central dude, but there's some stuff he's doing that's even kind of crazy and powerful for us that Jesus specifically mentions. So we probably ought to acknowledge. So he tells this story, two men, same temple. They both climb the temple stairs, right? And here's this Pharisee standing by himself, by himself. He wants you to know this. He's standing apart from other people. This guy, this Pharisee, isolated himself from others for probably a couple reasons. But one of those was to even come in contact with someone who was unclean, which is literally all of us in this room this morning, to come in contact with one of us would then make himself unclean. And so they were always the folks in the corner, like no COVID concerns for the Pharisees. They were never within six feet of other people. That's their life, right? And so that's the way they lived. And just, just think about that in the midst of brokenness and, and pain, uh, leprosy or psychological trauma, like their job was to back away from you, right? And these guys were like the, the picture of God to the commoner. So that's literally kind of how God became fashioned. So I'm sick, I'm hurting, I'm broken, somebody hurt me. And so God is obviously doing this, right? So he's standing by himself. That's a powerful posture to make. But he's also there to be seen. And we know that he's there to be seen because of Jesus' scathing rebuke of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 6. But not only is he just standing there, he's praying. Now, this is not like a lot of you may do, and he's just praying like this. He is praying aloud. He wants people to hear his prayer. He wants the tax collector, obviously, to hear him thanking God for not being like him. I mean, just, just imagine how awkward that would be in our culture. Uh, just for me to, to say, I'll just pick on Austin. If I prayed before the prayer, Father, thank you that I am not like Austin Wilkins. <laughs> I mean, that's what he's doing. He's projecting in that way. Uh, so I just noticed Austin's wearing flannel. Looks like lots of us are. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's true. Happy fall. We have pump. Well, I'm so white. Pumpkin spice lattes. <laughs> Man, that's good. Anyway, so yeah, but he's wanting you to hear it. So Jesus says this in Matthew chapter six. He says, and when you pray right before he teaches the Lord's prayer, he says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. They pick the spots with the greatest exposure to pray. And so then what is he praying? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Like, like, like the extortioners and the unjust and the adulterers. Or even like this tax collector. This man believes that he needs absolutely nothing. That's the point of the whole parable. He doesn't ask for a thing. You notice that? He's just like, God, I think like I'm not him or her. I'm not like any of them. I am different. I am in a different class. Secondly, even though he doesn't ask for anything, it's probably because his righteousness and by his standard, he was righteous, but his righteousness is exclusively and only a comparative righteousness, meaning his righteousness was based on what others didn't do as much as what he did do. There's a danger there. It's like I said, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee. At this point, you may be wanting to pray that prayer. Thank God I'm not like that. That's, that's not the point. But it is important to understand what he was doing to fabricate a degree of holiness. 
He then mentions, I just, I thank you I'm not like them. And here's some reasons why. A, they're nasty people. But I fast twice a week, God. Man, you know, I fast twice a week. You know that Leviticus 16 says, I really don't have to fast that much. Fast once a year in preparation for the Day of Atonement. That's what God says. But God, you say once a year, I say twice a week. And so, like, imagine the, like, the game of holy poker or whatever it was with the Pharisees sitting around. And they're saying, man, we got to get more righteous. What can we do, guys? It's like we fast once a year. What can we, why don't we fast twice a year? And they're like, yeah. And then the next dude's like, I get how this is going. We'll fast every month. And then they clap. And the next Pharisee's like, how about weekly? Why not weekly? Yeah, and they keep cheering and cheering until finally they decide twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, the Pharisees fasted every single week, which I'm really thankful to John MacArthur for picking up on this nuance. Those happened also to be market days in the city where all the folks from in the city and outside of the city would travel right through the city streets to go get their eggs. And so it just so happened they were going to fetch eggs and the Pharisees were like, those are our fasting days, you know, so they can be seen. And Jesus calls that out in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. He says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So they would go to the busy marketplaces and they would, you know, pull their cheeks in and look withered so that all the people trying to buy eggs would see that these guys, you're going to buy food and these guys are fasting. They're the ones who love God. And so God commanded this, but they still felt dirty a lot, right? But if you start creating a weekly and daily rhythm, then you can feel righteous because you're always doing something good. Secondly, he says, I tithe regularly. Now, this means that 23 and a third percent roughly of everything that he had would be given for either the temple tax or for the good of the community, right? So 23 and a third percent is not 10%. 10% is one of the tithes. He would count down to the seed to make sure he was tithing right. Now, I think it's kind of funny because I did not grow up like, like, like uh, with a tithe being a part of my language. But I have had several folks ask me, no fault of yours, maybe one of you, similar kind of questions. Do I tithe on my pre-tax or post-tax pay? Like, which one is it? Or... I want a cash prize playing bingo at the beach. Do I tithe on it? These are questions from the same heart. And it's not, you see how easy it comes in? You're just trying to be faithful in it, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard mountain preachers kind of base your blessing on a percentage that you give. That is so damnable and dangerous that you believe if you write your check for X amount, that somehow you won't sprain your ankle tomorrow. Like, that's crazy. That's bad theology. And I'll just say that straight up. It is bad theology. To live, to, to, to say that, that, that there is this amount that God goes, oh, I'm so thankful for you. I'm so thankful that you got that raise and you tied 10%. Because if you didn't, you know, I, I was just, I was going to light you up. Here's what John MacArthur says. He says, these Pharisees believed that they could acquire surplus merit by padding the actual law of God with lots of man-made rules, rites, and religious rituals. Right? And it, it doesn't come from bad places. That's why Baptists were like, man, we love the Lord's Day. We're going to worship every Lord's Day morning. Let's come back tonight. Yes! 
hey, we need a midweek. Let's do midweek. Yes. And then all of a sudden that became like added stuff. It's not bad to do these things ever. But what I'm saying is to be faithful in evangelical tradition was like you were there every time the church doors were open. And so we have succumbed to this in similar ways, padding it. But these Pharisees believed, kind of like insider trading for righteousness, if they added to it then met it, they could be righteous. Here's the problem. We can hide behind all of these things. We can hide unrepentant hearts and unrepentant lives behind every bit of these things. We can tithe with unrepentant hearts. We can attend church, participate in groups, serve in the worship service, teach a kid's class, contribute financially, give towards missions, serve on a mission trip, read your Bible every single day, sing in the service, pray multiple times, be kind to others, tell people, God bless you when they sneeze. I don't know what it is. Be a member of a church, invite people to church, invite people to evangelistic events, cook for church, dress up for Jesus, be nice to your coworkers, even be baptized. Ask Jesus to come into your heart in just this clear kind of superficial way. Weep in a church service. You can do all of these things and hide unrepentant hearts behind every bit of it. The radical truth of the gospel is this radical, that people we hate, people we think are disgusting and are rightly considered disgusting for the things they did, Adolf Hitler kind of people, Osama bin Laden kind of people. The radical truth of the gospel is that if either of those men in the last minutes of their life cried out the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior would receive the same heaven as Billy Graham. That's the radical truth of the gospel. So why do we believe this incessant cultural lie that we work, 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 do, 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 and God is pleased or angry based on our righteousness? It's not ours. It's Christ. That's what we've been singing this morning. And the ultimate aim in this whole story is to get to the end of your darn self. Like, come to the end of yourself. This is the tax collector's purpose. It's not just a tax collector. He's not like a representative of all tax collectors. Jesus is trying to contrast in the boldest way possible for the culture at the time who is the least likely to fall, to, to, to be heavy burdened by their sin in so much as they cannot even lift their head. So he picks the nastiest kind of guy in society, a tax collector. So they had a a remarkable business model for the lost. They purchased franchises from the Roman Empire. So like, um, I see Steve Castle. Let's pretend you're a tax collector for a minute, Steve. Steve goes to Raleigh, talks to Coop down there. And Cooper says, Steve, you're going to collect all the taxes for Watauga County. And Steve, all I need from you is I need you to write me a check for $300,000 every year. And so Steve Castle's job is to write Cooper $300,000 check once a year. That means... If Steve doesn't collect 300000 guess what? Super Cooper's coming up here with an axe. But if Steve collects half a million, who keeps the other 200000 Steve. All Rome wanted was the set amount. This is why tax collectors would use alternative means, extortion, theft, beating, rape, to get what they wanted. This was the type of person Jesus chose to stand in the story. One of those people who everywhere he looked was reminded of his own filth. You see, that's the problem. The Pharisee never had anybody saying what you're doing is filth. Because you're leaning on yourself. Everybody was telling tax collectors so. They had a reputation. And what I'm fascinated about in this, in this whole text is the authentic, genuine, humble, brokenness from which this tax collector speaks, with which he speaks. Uh, The psalmist in Psalm 123 says that 
when we go to the temple, it's a psalm of ascent. It says that they would sing these songs. To, they would say, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in heaven. And so I almost imagine like all of us climbing Howard's Knob together, singing some hymns. I lift up my eyes and Jesus tells us the contrast. This guy couldn't even lift his eyes up. What's happening in this moment is real. It's like real talk. And I do believe that a good reason that a many number of folks have left the church or have nothing to do with the church is because we don't know how to talk about our real brokenness. And I'll say this for the rest of my life. And so I, I, don't, I don't enjoy like hearing about brokenness, but I love identifying with the realness of it in order to call out the name of Christ. And so I tell you that to tell you that one of my channels or whatever you call those things in Spotify that I listen to while I work out is rap. And it's not like Christian rap. It's rap. It's from like Jay-Z and Eminem. And, um, and, I, and I appreciate rap because it's poetry. Uh, sometimes like they get overwhelming, dropping like F-bombs and stuff. And I'm like, that's just not artistic at all. <laughs> Keep going. Uh, yeah, your preacher's listening to rap in the gym. <laughs> Somebody call the deacons. <laughs> We need him just to be a picture of perfection, not Jesus, him. Um, it's easier. That way, if he does wrong, you can fire him. Um, the guy named Jelly Roll came across my, my playlist this week. <laughs> Jelly Roll. Is this his name? Yeah. You know Jelly Roll? You know Jelly Roll? <laughs> like, he's not a big name. I mean, he's, he's a big dude, but he's not a big name. <laughs> he dresses out like 425 pounds, got arrested for like running drugs and like ate at Waffle House. Like he became known at Waffle House because he'd go to Waffle House too much. But Jelly Roll, he has a, he has a cross tattoo right here on his face. They might get one. Uh, <laughs> but, so he has this religious heritage, right? But the dude has been just, just fallen into a world of depression and drugs and just stuff. Like, this is the guy, most y'all church people are like, oh, my heavens, like that kind of thing. Um, man, that's a, like, that, oh, we got we to gotta do better. We got to do better. Like, we're, you know, like, we got to know what's happening before Mercy Me gets there, right? Or, or, or b- b- before the redemptive hymns of beauty. Like, we've got to point this to this. And if we're not with this, to see this and know this and feel this and be like, oh, that's what, let me point you to this God. I know you're reaching and feeling for him, but let me point you to him. Like all the time we're saying, oh, I just love Jesus, but we're never dealing with the brokenness that the world is speaking in poetry through rap and dark country and all this stuff that's out there. They're crying out for the creator who knows them by name. And we're out here over here just in our own little world, like with the Pharisees, like, oh goodness, I'm thankful I don't have to listen to that. He says this, Jelly Roll, he has a lot of songs. But listen to these words. This is just an example. He says, sorrow's all I really ever feel. Ask the Lord if he can take the wheel. He's playing on Carrie. The lightness of what he would say is a light song by Carrie Underwood, which is the prevalent theology of the modern church. 
but he's not Christian. Ask the Lord if he can take the wheel. Here's where it gets real, a lot more real than Carrie Underwood even. As I'm sweating terribly gripping steel, because I never knew depression felt so real. I'm popping pills so I can feel okay. Vomiting most of my day away. Haunted by the things my father would say. As my mama prays, I'd see another day. I've been haunted by my demons. They try to take my soul. I've been smoking, drinking myself into a hole. Will I float or am I sinking? Because I swear that I don't know. He says this, this next line. Have you ever seen a demon right above you as you sleep? As you violently wake up and it looks into you so deep. As you're crying and you're shaking, as you hide beneath your sheets. Because I see that demon nightly. He's inside me screaming. I mean, my, a couple, few years ago, my staff laughed at me because it was funny because every time I heard the song Shallow by Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga, I would weep. <laughs> the world isn't happy. But they have a liturgy of brokenness that we ignore. A liturgy that's begging for redemption. Instead, we're creating alternative cultures of our own. Pulling everyone out of it saying, when you come to Christ, you do this. It's not a light into the darkness, it's a light in itself. The beauty is what happens right here in the story where a man who has not been church enough to clean up his language calls out the name of Jesus, essentially. You know, those are my favorite stories, man. And somebody who's just close to coming to Christ or just recently came to Christ, they're, they're telling you about their life and they're, they're, they're dropping some cuss words in there still because they, they, you know, they haven't cleaned it up like us. Like, that dude's real. This, this is real. And the tax collector beats his chest. You know, you've gotten phone calls before, right? Where somebody calls you, somebody died, you didn't expect unexpectedly. You feel it in your body, in your bowels is the way the Bible often talks about that. You're caught in a lie, right? That's what he feels in this moment. He beats his chest and he just says, have mercy on me, a sinner. He doesn't even care that jack wagons across the way saying, thank God I'm not like him. He doesn't even care at the moment. He knows. I don't want to be like him. I want to be like you. I want to be like you. We want to cover up the shame. Like we want to do this. Like you know, Adam and Eve, they put they put clothes over themselves and felt shame for the first time. And we've been doing the same thing ever since, just with with friendships and guardedness and isolation from others. We do the same thing. The lesson isn't just the tax collector, it's not the Pharisee, it's the power of what Jesus is pointing to. A simple change in posture from telling God who you think you are and what you think you need to do today, and thanking God for all these things that you have accomplished for yourself. And the contrast in this story is a simple ask, a simple question, rather than telling just ask that's the power that's the lesson from jesus in this whole story like hush your mouth about what you've done it doesn't matter it doesn't matter good it doesn't matter bad shame or accomplishment it doesn't matter stop telling me and just ask for jesus you need to get this because jesus is ultimately saying this it's not found in the vanity of comparing yourselves to others it's found in the freedom of calling yourself a sinner before a holy and perfect god and accepting his perfect atonement and the great high priest's accomplishment that's what he's getting at here. And so I, this is, I said we're going to go personal here. I, I want us to go personal. So if you have paper, I want you to, to write this. God does this in weeks like this. I love it from, 
from dropping hints from uh, just music and reading and all those things, and then they come across or sermons. And so I was watching, um, it actually came up as a recommended watch. David Platt was preaching in Virginia at the church he pastors. And so he did that. He, he gave me Jelly Roll this week, and he gave me David Platt. And those are both uh, some, some elements of God's grace, Jelly Roll and Platt. So I don't know if those two have ever been combined. But a similar point, and what they did up there was really powerful. They did like a live survey, anonymous survey, to get a feel for the, the people. I don't think we even need to do a survey to know this stuff's pervasive. So if you have something to write with, I want you just to kind of respond to some of these questions because we're going to deal with this and we're going to bring these up. We're going to dig a little bit and put them on the, on the surface of your hearts. You, you're not telling anybody else this. This is, this is just for you and Jesus. But we're keeping in mind here the power of asking, right? Just ask. And so before we get there, I'm going to ask you some questions. Do you ever feel unclean or dirty because of something you have done? And uh, the rest of the questions will go much quicker as you get the rhythm. Do you ever feel unclean or dirty because of something you have done? The follow-up question every single time is this. the, The word dirty will change, but do you ever feel unclean or dirty because of something that someone else has done to you? All right. And so the others will go faster, but I want to say in this moment, these are more than just the generalities like, oh, I'm prideful or I'm shameful. These are the scenes that the enemy may use to haunt you with still to this day. The faces, the names. And, And if this is something that you're like, I can't do this right now, don't do this right now. Okay, it's cool. Do you ever struggle with guilt over something you have done? Not necessarily dirtiness or uncleanness, but guilt. Even when you can call out in church that you've been forgiven. Do you ever struggle with guilt over something you have done? Or do you ever struggle with guilt over something that someone else has done to you? Guilt. Do you ever struggle with shame over something you have done? Or shame over something that someone else has done to you? Shame, guilt, dirtiness. Here's a big one. Do you ever feel afraid of what others might think about you if they knew the things you had done? Do you ever feel afraid of what others might think about you if they knew the things you have done? Or do you ever feel afraid what others might think about you if they knew the things that someone else had done to you? Do you ever feel alone because of something you have done? Or do you ever feel alone because of something that someone else has done to you? At some point today or in the week ahead, if you've never done this before, you're going to have to get to the place where in just a few words you need to name this thing or things. What have you done? In just a few words, what have you done that has led to feeling unclean, guilty, ashamed, afraid, or alone? Or what has someone done to you that's left you feeling guilty, ashamed, afraid, or alone? And the point of answering these questions is to answer this question. Do you feel that same guilt, that same shame, that same fear, that same isolation before God in these things as well? This is the stuff that haunts us. This is the stuff that, that, that causes us to hold back. This is the stuff that we bring in here every single week and pretend it away so that we can at least feel good before God for an hour or so. And then there it is right when we leave. 
the tax collector, something happens to him. The text says that he walked away justified. He walked away justified and went down to his house justified. What in the world happened? Like what happened in that moment? Did God lessen the scale, the standard? Did he say, you know what? My standard was perfection, but for this humble dude, I'm going to say, you know, you work. No, he doesn't change the standard. Be holy as I am holy. Jesus says be perfect. So he doesn't change the standard. Does he ignore the offense? No. He doesn't ignore anything about this guy's life. The shameful moments, the guilty moments. He doesn't, he doesn't ignore any of those. They're right there, front and center. They are, they are like, a, like a cloud of dirt everywhere this guy walks. So he, he's not ignoring them. He's not lessening the standard. He's certainly not saying, go down to your house, wake up tomorrow and do these 15 things, and you'll be a little closer to me. He's not even saying in that moment, in this text, stop doing them, although he will. God is maintaining the same standard, not ignoring the offense of the man, not demanding some list of righteousness to get a little closer. God is clothing the man in the accomplishment, the atonement, and the righteousness of Jesus Christ in this moment in time. And so now he looks at the man in a Colossians 3 kind of way. What is Colossians 3 kind of way? Verses 1 through 4 is what I want to show first. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. He is looking at the man in a new way because this man has come humbled and broken. If then you have been raised with Christ, verses 1, I'm going to start with verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seat at the right hand of God. Pause. This still seems like he's just saying just change the way you think right? That's not justification, y'all. Come into Christ so you change the way you think is not justification. If you come here and you get baptized, if little Paige gets baptized today and her life is just change the way you think about stuff, right? Don't look at it. That's kind of modern Christianity. Don't look at it. No, that keeps going though. It's a beautiful answer. Verse two, Colossians chapter three, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Still, you're just telling me not to think about stuff. You're telling me stuff to do. So he's got to walk back down to his house and set his mind on other stuff. So, so every time he sees the prostitute, he might have frequented. We're telling him, hey, when you see her, just look the other way, which might be good discipline. But there's a deeper point here. What are we doing when we inculcate that kind of stuff? We've got to get, because Paul's going to continue all this kind of stuff in verse 5. Verse 3. Here's why. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You know what that means? Is that all your filth and junk is now wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks upon this tax collector, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus. You know who God sees throughout the week when you feel like God's angry with you because you're not doing the right thing at the right moment? You know who God sees? You want to know what power to overcome temptation is? It's not doing it better next time. And it's not just, you know, 27 steps to being more holy and less sinful. No, it's recognizing that God sees Jesus. When Christ, who is your life, appears, 
here's the promise, then you will appear with him in glory. This man walks up to the temple, a tax collector. God sees every moment of his life and every broken point of his life and all the filth and all the thoughts and all the recurring temptations and all the, all the, all the filth he's done, all that, all the, the gambling, the cheating, the lying, stealing, the pornography, every bit of it, the stuff you suffer from, I suffer from in this room, all the sin we suffer from. He sees it all. And then he sees Jesus. And he sees a spotless lamb. That's the gospel. And if you have lived your whole life hearing some idea of the gospel that you come to Christ and then your job is to do better and not think about things, you've never been told that in Christ, when you call out the name of Christ, you are literally clothed in him and hidden in him before a holy and perfect father. Accepted. Pleasing to him. The great high priest makes it so that you are pleasing to the Father. And so the point is, as we close this, if you are feeling unclean, if you are feeling guilty, if you are feeling ashamed, afraid, or alone, and I know that everyone in this room at times is feeling it, if you are tired of comparing yourself to others, if you're not tired of comparing yourself to others, please let me know. Let me know about that. But all of us in this room feel the heaviness of uncleanness, of guilt, of guilt, of shame, of isolation, of fear, right? Of comparing ourselves to the other guy who just seems to have their life together. That's the greatest temptation. We have like students in every age group like, man, if my faith could just look more like theirs, I'd be good. But see, that's the thing. We only know other people from the outside in. It's all we know of them. You're the only one who knows you from the inside out. And so everyone all the time is probably going to look a little more righteous than you. So stop doing it. Stop comparing yourself to others because the minute you get in their shoes, you're going to recognize the sin and the temptations and the failings they have, but you're also going to recognize the same Savior who saved them saves you. So as we sing today, I want to give new meaning and purpose to a hymn that is very familiar. And I want this hymn to be our prayer. I want this to be our benediction in many ways before, before, Miss, before Lindsay baptizes her daughter. I want you to hear the words to this song we've sung many times called Before the Throne of God Above. This hymn was written originally as a song called The Advocate, and it had no music with it. They were just lyrics. The Advocate. It wasn't until more recently that it received the familiar hymn and the music that we are familiar with. But listen to these words and just think upon all that the Lord is showing in the Gospel of Luke and in the music we've already sung this morning. It goes like this, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. What is that plea? A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. It's personal. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart, no power No power on earth can separate you from the love of Christ if you are in him. When Satan tempts me to despair, Satan is the one who brings up the images, the faces, the moments, the rooms, maybe even the smell and the sights of that time that you can't get out of your mind and tells you of the guilt within. Upward I look, by God's grace, upward I look and see him there. One, Jesus Christ, Holy Savior, who made an end to all my sin. Why? Because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. 
For God the just is fully satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Let's stand together and let's sing this song and let's take an opportunity to pray at this altar, pray where you are, to repent. This is the Christian life. Repentance and prayer and grace. Joyful repentance, prayer and grace. That's what, that's what we see modeled before us in a Savior who came to save us. Let me pray. Father, thank you that we, uh, we have a great privilege of, of not, not working our way towards anything or working our way from anything. Our state before Christ is deplorable and lost and hopeless, but in Christ it is hopeful. And Lord, there is nothing for those of us who have called out the name of Jesus to see that, that what we bring is the end of ourselves and that the great high priest who sets us free is there ready graciously waiting for us to simply ask, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So we come in this moment as close as those men 2,000 years ago were. The Pharisee couldn't even see it. We come before the throne and we sing together. We pray, we repent, we praise together. In Jesus' name, amen.